This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 8. Life is the longest thing you'll ever do. If you twist and turn away. If you tear yourself in two again. If I could, yes I would. If I could. I would let it go. Surrender. Dislocate. I'm wide awake. I'm not sleeping. You too. Bad. One. Charleston. People often say, life is short. A friend of mine likes to add, no it's not. Life is the longest thing you'll ever do. So you'd better do it well and make it count. I remember the exact moment when I chose to stop drinking. Up until that point, I'm not sure I even recognized that it was a problem for me. I guess I was so caught up in the culture surrounding my chosen profession that I barely took notice. And that is not to say that all we musicians are a crazy bunch of lushes. We're not. I just spent the better part of my mid-twenties to my early forties playing and hanging out in bars. Being sober has had endless benefits for me, but I never wanted to be one of those annoying people who has seen the light and corrected the error of his or her ways and then goes about pushing their agenda to anyone and everyone. And I don't mean to make it sound like some former alcoholics and addicts are bad people for doing this. They're not. They're actually incredibly kind-hearted. They just want everyone to feel as good as they do. They think that if they tell everyone around them their secret to success, that it will suddenly click for that other person just like it did for them. And then they can take credit for that person's redemption. Or something like that. I don't push my thing on anyone. I don't preach to anyone. I want people to feel good too, but I realize that everyone's path in life is different. Everyone's trauma is different. This is just the shit that works for me. I used alcohol as a coping mechanism, a way to numb overstimulation in social settings, a way to dull the pain of emotions that I found simply too overwhelming to process without the help of a drink, and a way to get rid of inhibitions which I unfortunately had an abundant surplus of, maybe just a bit more than the average person. I suffer from a little bit of what I like to call intermittent social anxiety. It's really strange. It comes and goes without warning and picks and chooses its own moments. 
almost like it's an entity unto itself. I liken it to a scene in the Zack Snyder Superman film, Man of Steel. There's a moment when young Clark Kent, played masterfully by Henry Cavill, is just starting to come into his otherworldly abilities where he has no control over them at all. He hasn't learned how to focus his powers yet. He can hear everything and he can see everything and his senses are in complete overload. It would feel a bit this way to me when I would go out or when I'd be playing in a bar or club. It was almost like I was a giant antenna that picked up the vibe or energy of an entire room and it could be incredibly overwhelming at times. Drinking took the edge off of this feeling for me, and I did it nearly as a kind of reflex for many, many years. Before I had a handle on it, I'd need to start drinking the moment I got into a crowded room of any kind, and it got so bad at a certain point that I would actually leave a place after only a minute or two of walking in the front door. For that reason, back when I drank, I much preferred dimly lit dive bars that were barely populated and mostly quiet. I'd rather have a conversation with one or two bar patrons or maybe even just the bartender than deal with shouting over hundreds of people or even fighting for a spot to sit at the bar. And I'm not saying that social anxiety was the root of all my drinking either. There were obvious other underlying emotional issues that I've since been trying to face and deal with as well. I only realized this when I had to quit altogether and then had to relearn how to process basic emotions. I'm not joking when I tell you I had no idea how to start, or even what certain feelings were. It was only after I identified them that I could begin to process what they really were, or why I felt a certain way. I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast that I was adopted at birth, and I know full well that had a lot to do with my emotional state, both past and present. This, however, is going to be one heavy mother of an episode, so I will save that story for another time. From my earliest piano recitals at the age of seven or eight, I would physically shake when I'd perform. The tremors would only subside after being on stage for long enough to get comfortable, at least several songs. This would also happen in fits and spurts at the beginning of my career with Exploding Boy. I view alcoholism as a spectrum, and while I wasn't fully in the deep end of the swimming pool, I was definitely making my way there. Much like the metaphor of the frog that sits in a pot of slowly boiling water until it dies, I was well on my way to becoming an ex-frog. And I need to make something very clear here. I wouldn't dream of insulting alcoholics by calling myself one. I was able to simply make a decision to stop, and outside of a couple small moments in the very beginning, was never really tempted to dive back into drinking. I am aware that some people struggle with this far, far worse than I did, and my heart and my respect goes out to them. My thing was that I didn't have a reliable functioning off switch. I wasn't the kind of person who could ever just go out for a few beers with friends. If I was going out, I was getting fucked up. The two went hand in hand. There was no moderation. It was entirely common for me to start a regular night off with a shot of Jaeger and a beer the moment I got to any given bar, or a shot of Jaeger and a double captain and Diet Coke. Fireball whiskey then became my shot of choice upon moving to Nashville. But I was the unchallenged Jägermeister King of Gainesville when I lived there. I even wrote a stupid song about it that I used to do at my shows back then, every time I took a shot of Jäger or when someone would buy me one. I'm not sure how I'm even still around to be telling these stories. Speaking of which, more and more people that I knew from the bar scene were actually beginning to die. Late hours, poor diet, poor sleep, 
and copious amounts of alcohol and sometimes drugs were the culprits here. There was, of course, my friend Wilbur, who was the first casualty, another friend of mine, another bar manager who we called Dutch from Gator City in Gainesville, and several others. It's just not a sustainable model for a healthy life as you move into your 30s and beyond. I don't want anyone to mistake my telling of this story as some kind of cry for sympathy either. I'm just putting out into the world how bad things had gotten for me, and I didn't recognize it as a problem. I rented an amazing little house when I first moved to Nashville. I almost couldn't believe my good fortune in finding the place. It was a great little single-story, two-bedroom home in a suburb of Nashville called Donaldson. The place had been freshly remodeled, so everything inside was new. All hardwood floors, new siding, a new roof, and it was located in what felt like a pretty safe little neighborhood, too. There was shopping just down the street and around the corner, two large grocery store chains, both a CVS and a Walgreens, Chinese food, other various restaurants, and, most importantly for me back then, a liquor store. Rent was cheap, by Gainesville standards, that is, 750 bucks a month plus cable and utilities. But then again, I was actually making money when I lived in Gainesville. Now, I was working a job barely making minimum wage in Nashville, and gigs were few and far between to start, so monthly expenses quickly got out of hand. It became difficult to even keep the power on some months. But I always found money to drink somehow. The first six months to a year in Nashville just felt like a dark pit. I had a few friends, but nobody that I would really get together with very often. I knew I needed to be making more of an effort to be getting out on weekends to meet people, to go see live music, and to try and get my name out there. But the social anxiety I finished telling you about just a little while ago prevented me from doing so on more occasions than I feel comfortable mentioning. So my usual routine on weekends was to grab a bottle of Captain Morgan or crack and rum and a case of beer and head to the house. Oh, I also kept a full bottle of Jägermeister in the freezer, just in case of emergencies. I'd watch movies, I'd play guitar, and I'd get drunk. By myself. All weekend long. Occasionally, I would drunk dial old friends or old girlfriends and would sometimes end up a slobbering, sobbing mess for God only knows why. Rinse on Monday, repeat the following weekend. Something had to give, and thankfully, something did. The night before I quit for good, I was playing an acoustic trio gig with Chuck Wicks and Chris Nix in Charleston, South Carolina. After the show, Chuck looked at both of us and said, We're going out tonight, boys, which usually meant we're staying out until the morning. And we had a 5 a.m. lobby call in the morning to catch a shuttle to the airport to fly back to Nashville. True to form, we ended up going out on the town and drinking all night. I don't think we even got back to our hotel until sometime around 3 a.m. The next morning, I awoke to the bedside phone ringing off the hook and Chris pounding on my door telling me I had five minutes to get down to the lobby or I was going to miss the shuttle to the airport. In a mad scramble, I threw everything in sight haphazardly into my bag, grabbed my guitar, and made my way downstairs, still drunk and on my way to getting hungover. I felt like absolute hell. When we finally made it to the airport and had gotten through security, we thankfully had about a half an hour to spare before boarding. 
I'm fairly sure if the airline employees were fully aware of my physical state, they probably would not have let me even board the plane. But I got really good at hiding it. We sat there on that bright sunny morning, me across from Chris and Chuck in a bank of seats, facing out the large picture window that looked out onto the tarmac and a grouping of planes. I happened to catch my reflection in the sunlight on the window. A haggard, bloated, pale, overweight reflection of a guy I almost didn't recognize stared back at me. At that moment, a little voice in my head said, I think it's time to stop. So I looked at Chris and I said it out loud, repeating what the voice in my head had just said. I won't say that I saw relief on his face, but it was something close to that. He was one of my best and closest friends, and I'm sure he was quietly worried about me. He lit up instantly and began positively affirming my declaration. Just think about all the money you'll save, and you'll feel better, and you'll look better. You'll probably lose weight. All positives. And it doesn't have to be a permanent stop either. You can just take a break for 30 days and see how you feel after that, and then you can reassess. To this day, when the fact that I no longer drink comes up in conversation with Chris, he always says the same thing. I'm still so glad you stopped. I like you much better this way. And I always say, I like me much better this way too. It was July 7th, 2016, a day I still celebrate as my sober birthday. It started as a 30-day break from alcohol, and it felt so good after 30 days that I shot for 60. And when I reached that mark, I just kept going. And I've watched my life get exponentially better with each passing day and each passing year. It has now been almost eight years since I've had a drop of alcohol. And I haven't looked back. Not even once. Two. Lisa. Recounting the story of my sobriety wouldn't be complete without telling you about the person who I consider to be the catalyst for it. I met a girl named Lisa at St. Bonaventure University in the early 90s. We got set up on a date for an event called Screw Your Roommate. Each dorm on campus would set up a different date for these events, which happened all year long. They could be held off campus at a restaurant or event space, or they could be just a simple house party where everyone would gather. Usually it was a formal event. Dresses for the girls, shirts and ties for the guys. At least that's how I remember it. The way Screw Your Roommate worked was that you'd entrust your roommate to either set you up with someone you told them you found attractive on campus and wanted to go out with, or if you were not so fortunate and didn't get along with your roommate, they could also set you up with the very last person you'd want to spend a night out with. The story goes that Lisa had seen me somewhere on campus and had developed a bit of a crush, unbeknownst to me. So she got her roommate, a girl named Brandy, to ask me if I'd go to screw your roommate with her. I said yes, not even knowing who Lisa was. The way I looked at it, a night out would be fun no matter who I was with. There was no pressure. And I've always tended to like girls who took initiative. I'm not sure why. Once I looked Lisa up in the student directory, I was instantly taken with how pretty I thought she was. There must be some mistake, I thought. This girl is interested in me? I started really looking forward to the date. Lisa was tall and very attractive. She was slender with shoulder-length brunette hair and large, doe-like, velvety brown eyes. 
She was very self-assured in the way that she carried herself, and I was instantly taken with her, hook, line, and sinker, the very second I saw her in person. It wasn't long before we became an exclusive couple, and I was soon spending all of my free time with her. She was my first real adult long-term relationship, in as much as being 19 years old could be considered adult. Lisa was a year younger than me, and I quickly fell in love with everything about her. And since we were away at school together with almost no adult supervision, we quickly began staying together on an almost nightly basis. She was from a small town about 30 miles outside of Rochester called Albion, New York. During breaks from school, I'd often travel to spend weekends at her family home, or she would come spend time at my parents' house. I got to know her family, including her extended family, very well. They all liked me, and I liked them. We'd go watch her brother play Little League baseball games a lot, and I felt a closeness with her that was only really hinted at with my previous grade school girlfriends. Lisa struggled with a lot of issues, anorexia being one of them. I don't know whether bipolar disorder was on the menu as well, but she definitely suffered with anxiety and depression and some other emotional challenges. Try as I might to help her and to stay supportive, she had an incredibly feisty and almost aggressive side to her, which I didn't discover until we had been together for well over a year. I wasn't very fond of it. She could be a total impulsive spitfire at times, and this was worrisome to me. I loved her with all of my heart, but after just over two years as a couple, we ended up splitting up in the most unpleasant way. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't amicable, and it left both of us heartbroken. I had just turned 22 and was taking a break from college for a year to pursue my career with Exploding Boy more full-time, so this helped me put time and distance between Lisa and I. She continued on at St. Bonaventure the following year, and as often happens, we lost touch and went our separate ways for a while as our individual paths diverged. Many years later, I was surprised to get a friend request from her on the OG social media platform, MySpace. Remember that one? I gladly accepted it, as well over a decade had passed since we had any contact with one another, and I was happy to find that she had made a life for herself and seemed to be doing really great. She had a job as a bank manager in Rochester and was still living in her hometown of Albion. She had bought herself a nice little house with a white picket fence, no joke, two dogs, and had a daughter with someone who she never married. She still looked great, and it was like the initial attraction we had for one another all those years prior had never really gone away. I was in the height of my solo acoustic years in Gainesville, and I would often arrange trips home for the holidays as what I used to call working vacations. I had various clubs that would agree to book me for a night along the road up to Rochester from Gainesville, in Georgia, South Carolina, Washington, D.C., and in Rochester itself. I would leave several days ahead of Thanksgiving and Christmas and play on the way up. I'd book one or two shows in Rochester, and then I'd play gigs on the way back down. I'd finance my own trip. It worked out really well, and I was grateful to be able to continue to play in these places, going mainly on the reputation I'd established with Exploding Boy many years earlier. Lisa and I made plans to meet up around Thanksgiving time that year for dinner to catch up face-to-face. -face. After all, there was a lot to talk about. And it was as if no time had passed, and we fell right back into being Michael and Lisa. We ended up rekindling our relationship for a brief time, and she even flew down to Gainesville to spend a long weekend with me at one point. This all seemed to be going well, until I realized that her outer shell of having her shit completely together 
was actually a facade. She was still a spitfire, prone to angry outbursts, and she was still just as troubled as ever. It didn't make me love her any less. I think we both just knew that we couldn't be together romantically, so we agreed to remain friends. And we still made a point of having dinner or lunch together about twice a year when I'd make it back to Rochester for the holidays, and I always looked forward to it. We would text with each other quite often, and we migrated from MySpace to Facebook friends over the years that followed. I'd keep track of her posts about her young daughter's budding career in the theater. She adored her daughter, who was now growing into a young woman, and most of her posts were about her family and her dogs and the band Rival Sons. She was a huge fan of rock and roll, and she loved that band. And although we never really spoke about it, I always hoped that she was getting the darker sides of her struggles under control. On May 24th, 2016, I was on the road driving for work in Nashville. It was an ordinary day doing my side hustle thing. I got a phone call from Anthony from Exploding Boy. Excited to hear from my lifetime friend, I remember answering the phone using a fake foreign accent, as I'm likely to do with people I'm close to, or some other stupid bullshit. The other end of the line fell silent, and I could sense that something was wrong. Hey man, what are you doing? Are you driving? Yeah man, just working. What's up? What's wrong? I need you to pull over. I have some really bad news. What's happening, man? You're scaring me. Lisa killed herself this morning. I instantly lost all feeling in my body. I felt myself go completely numb. I heard the words, Oh my God, leave my mouth as a scream, filled with utter and complete shock and disbelief. It was almost like I was above my body watching all this happen. I just kept saying, No, over and over again, as I broke down crying. It's hard to write about this, and it's hard to think about this, and it's hard to record this. Anthony was given the unenviable task of delivering this horrendous news by Lisa's best friend, a girl named Teresa, who we had all been friends with since we were in college. Teresa had sadly found out what happened via Facebook. One of her mutual friends with Lisa heard the news, being that Albion was such a small town, and not knowing that Teresa didn't know, offered her condolences over Facebook Messenger. I still feel horrible that that's how she found out. Teresa didn't know how to reach me directly at that point, but she knew she needed to get to me to let me know. She knew how close Lisa and I were. She reached out to another of our friends, a guy named Steve, who actually spent a good amount of time as a roadie and a tech for Exploding Boy back in the day. He and Anthony had been college roommates, so she knew he could get to Anthony, who in turn could get to me. Teresa just wanted to make sure that I didn't learn the news the same way that she had. And to both her and to Anthony, I owe a huge thank you for that. These selfless acts on both their parts would never soften that blow. But horrible news delivered by someone you love is always a better option than reading a Facebook post or having someone slide into your DMs to ruin your life. I got Teresa's contact info and I spoke to her that night. She told me she was away in Boston for work. She had spoken to Lisa that morning. Apparently, Lisa was on a cocktail of meds for her depression and anxiety, and her doctor had recently switched one of them. This apparently wreaked havoc on her. Lisa was nervous about something going on at work. I think she was worried that she was going to be fired over something, 
and she had spent the entire night previous getting drunk. According to Teresa, this had become a more regular occurrence. Lisa had gotten a DUI at some point and had several car wrecks or near misses because of driving drunk. She was obviously struggling. Teresa reached out to Lisa that morning before she had gotten on her plane for Boston and had told her to get in touch if she needed anything. And that was the last she ever heard from her. Lisa kept guns in the house. She and Teresa and our friend Steve would all go shooting together on many occasions. And although I don't have the exact details, and I don't care to know them, sometime early that May morning, Lisa put a gun to her head and pulled the trigger. She was only 43 years old. She left behind her 18-year-old daughter, her parents, her younger brother, and her dogs. To make matters even more horrific, her parents, who lived just around the corner from her, became worried that they hadn't heard from her that morning, and I believe her mother is the person who discovered her body after it was too late. It was all something out of a nightmare. I couldn't make sense of it then, and I'm still trying to make sense of it now. It all just seemed like such a waste. I was angry. I was sad. And I was in a lot of pain. And before I knew it, I too started drinking every chance I got to numb this absolute horror show out of my consciousness. And I started playing that game that I'm sure everyone who has dealt with suicide of a loved one does. I should have been able to see this. Maybe if I had called her or texted her more, I could have stopped this and she'd still be here. Why didn't she let me know she needed help? Thankfully, another of my ex-girlfriends, someone who I dated in high school and remained close with, ended up going on to become a clinical psychologist. Our families were close when we were younger, so we stayed in touch through the years. When word of Lisa's death got to her, she reached out to me immediately and offered to try and help comfort me. And I'll never forget what she said. I've worked with a lot of families of people who have committed suicide. People who are suffering in that way aren't in their right mind. It's easy to jump right to calling people who commit suicide selfish, but that is wrong. They see themselves as a burden on all those that they care about. In killing themselves, they believe that they are unburdening everyone that they love, and there is nothing that you or anyone else could have done to stop it. When someone gets it in their head that they're going to kill themselves, that is it. I self-medicated really hard after that for several months. And it wasn't until that morning in the airport in Charleston, South Carolina, when I sat across the aisle from Chris and Chuck, that I realized that I didn't want to continue being numb with alcohol. I wanted to live my life. I wanted to experience every last bit of it without being clouded or impaired with any kind of substance. Not to mention the fact that I was living out a lot of struggling musicians' dreams at that exact moment. I had boarded a plane on someone else's dime to go play a gig on the road with a well-known country artist. And I was squandering the opportunity that I had worked for so many years to achieve. I still think about Lisa a lot. I'm sure that's never going to be something that ever goes away. I still wish she wouldn't have done what she did. The world was a much better place with her in it. I am grateful for the clarity her actions gave me, though. She's the reason I've spent almost eight years now being completely present and being grateful on a daily basis, and above all, being sober. And my life and my career successes are the best monument to her that I could possibly put up to preserve her memory. 
No one is perfect, and no one is without issues or demons to fight off. And it's hard. It's really fucking hard. You just can't allow them to win. You just have to keep fighting and never give up. If you or anyone you know is struggling, help is available. Just dial 988 to talk with someone. The 988 Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress and prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.